Okay, so today I am really genuinely very excited to have a guest on the show, Andrew McLuhan, who is director of the McLuhan Institute. I would imagine that almost everybody who's working in media, tech, and hopefully beyond would have at least heard the saying, the medium is the message. But actually, the kind of McLuhan name and legacy goes well beyond that. Um, So Andrew is the grandson of Marshall McLuhan. I regularly quote his grandfather. I hear him being quoted to me, sometimes misquoted. But I think his legacy really stands. And I think is increasingly relevant, actually. When we were talking off air, Andrew referenced the fact that much of the thinking actually predated what we understand of the digital world and our digital lives. And so really looking forward to understand the good work that Andrew's doing, but specifically how the conversation started. And we were lucky enough to get Andrew on the show was somebody introduced us because I was asking the question, how does the medium is the message applied to AI. And more generally than that, if Marshall was with us, if we could summon Marshall, you know, what would he be telling us about the world that we're entering now with advances in generative AI? Hopefully, Andrew can help us navigate some of that, understand and explore some McLuhanisms. But also, I'm really excited to understand the good work that Andrew's doing to kind of extend and evolve and apply uh, thoughts, thinking, frameworks to an increasingly complicated world. So firstly, let's learn a little bit about you as an individual, but then maybe for those that haven't heard of um, your grandfather or perhaps don't understand him beyond, you know, one or two of these kind of brilliant kind of sayings, frameworks, some of those kind of uh, McLuhanisms, and then we can perhaps start talking about how they could be applied to this this world that we're living in now. Hey, thanks for having me on today. It's uh, I've been looking forward to this. It's a it's a pleasure. You know, you might think 10 years in it's getting old, but um, I love talking about this stuff. You know, as you said, it seems to be increasingly relevant. In one sense, it's as relevant as it ever was. In another sense, the deeper we get into technology, the more urgent it is for us to have tools to understand what's happening. So in that sense, for sure, McLuhan work um, is gets more relevant. You know, it's not that uh, McLuhan work holds all the answers, but it holds quite a few answers. When you're trying to understand something, any foothold you can get is helpful as a starting place. And, uh, you know, you take one step and that leads to another and to another. So about myself, uh, Marshall McLuhan was my grandfather. His eldest son, Eric McLuhan, uh, was my father. And Eric and Marshall worked together from kind of the mid-60s till Marshall died in 1980. He was only 69 years old. And then I started working with my dad when I was in my early 30s and kind of got bit by the bug later on. Earlier in my life, I was more interested in poetry and punk rock. I remain interested in poetry and punk rock. And actually, it kind of informs what I do here. Because while my my grandfather and my father were multi-degreed academics. You know, I kind of barely managed to graduate high school. I come at it from a completely different direction. And I think that's kind of important because, you know what, academia had several decades to do something with this, with much love to all my academic friends and to the important work they do. They haven't done much beyond write papers and have conferences. And that's being a little provocative, but uh, the point is that we we need to do more than that because uh, that you know, we need to make some serious changes in how we go about innovating in the first place and deploying technologies 
and and using them. And I think some fresh thinking in that regard uh, might be might be very helpful. Yeah, Marshall McLuhan. The interesting thing about him was he was an English teacher. He was an expert in poetry, uh, modernist poetry, huge, big content consumer, that guy, big into Eliot, James Joyce in particular. And the really interesting thing about his work is that he comes to his work in culture and technology directly from his work in poetry and literature. In fact, he kind of took the techniques he learned to um, criticize content, you know, look at the effects of poetry and apply them to looking at the effects of technologies. And he found, uh, to everybody's surprise, that there's a lot to be learned there, which is very interesting. And he certainly contributed a lot to our understanding with a phrase like, the medium is the message, which he first said in 1958. And really, if all I do at the McLuhan Institute is help the world understand the medium is the message, I've done a lot. Because that that little phrase, those five little words go a long way. They are they are galaxies deep. And once you understand that it's, uh, you know, the environment that is created by technologies, which shapes us and turns us into new humans that, you know, feel and think and sense and do new things, then you understand that the medium is a message and that this happens. You know, the content is really the the delivery mechanism for all these changes. And that's that's the essence behind the medium is a message. And if technologists understood this, if governments and regulators understood this, if consumers understood this, really, that it's, you know, on a level with uh, environmental science and how we pollute the environment and how that affects us, the world would be a, a much different place. Something that might also be very helpful for people to understand, which is kind of a bit deeper, really one of Marshall's large contributions to the to the field of studying technology is in enlarging this category of what a medium is, you know, what we consider technology. Um, and it's it's more than just what you plug in. Marshall looked at essentially everything that people do make uh, that extends our abilities beyond what our bodies are capable of as a technology. When you look at it this way, it really helps you to understand all technologies because uh, they all have several things in common. And a a t-shirt, an air conditioner, a cell phone, a computer of any kind, all have the power to change what's possible and what's not possible in terms of human ability and organization. And that in turn changes us in our world. Yeah, and I, I really love the way that you put that. And I actually didn't know that degree of background on Marshall. And I think it's really interesting. I mean, it, it kind of makes sense, actually. The elegance of how he framed things probably could have only been done by somebody that that was coming at it from the perspective of language and poetry and making very impactful statements rich statements full of meaning in the most simplest, elegant and repeatable way. And and that's why his work stuck, right? This is the one thing um, I teach courses on McLuhan work and workshops and consult and whatever for individuals and companies. And the number one advice I can give you to look into it on your own is to treat it like poetry because his work has much more in common with poetry than prose. When you're reading a regular nonfiction book, like The Lean Startup or anything else, you're really getting it spoon-fed to you. And it's very clear uh, and unambiguous. 
The difficulty with that is there's not a lot of room for you to participate and to complete the circuit of learning. Poetry is, is something very, very different. You would never sit down and read a book of poetry cover to cover. Maybe a couple poems at a time, maybe one poem at a time, maybe even a paragraph at a time. And you read it over and over and you read it out loud and you try it a little bit differently and you really fill in the meaning. The meaning happens as a consequence of your involvement. And this is how Marshall performed most of his work. This is why he spoke in phrases like the medium is the message, because uh, to get anything from it, you really have to put in the work. Um, and that's where the learning and the education and really the communication happens. What I do with my students is I say, don't read Understanding Media like you would read um, any other self-help book or, you know, how to win friends and influence people. Read it like poetry because um, that's what it is. It's very deep. It's deeper than you can ever go. And I've learned this having read it twice through with students in the last two years from when the metaverse came online to when uh, Midjourney and ChatGPT dropped. And the remarkable thing that I found, especially with understanding media, is that it's as if it was written to be directly applicable to what's happening today. And it was written to be directly applicable to what happened today. That's why it's kind of evergreen and perennial is just about every page you would flip to in there has something to tell you about what's happening in technology today. That's a remarkable thing and why it has a lot more in common with poetry than with prose. Many people, I'm sure, don't think about poetry as a technology. You know, it's an ancient technology. You know, there are several, several expressions of the word. There's uh, the word in your mind and there's uh, the spoken word, and there's the written word. The written word is very new. It's only really a few thousand years old. The spoken word and the mental word are ancient. They go beyond our comprehension of, of time and measurement of it. But this was the way that most knowledge uh, and information was passed on for millennia, for generations, was through the mouth to the ear. And poetry is a specific technology to help us uh, remember that through generations. It's interesting to think about that, especially for young technologists who might be listening right now or watching and uh, coming up with new technologies. There is there's a lot more to be learned in what's behind us um, going back more than 20 years uh, than there is in the last 20 years or 10 years even. Yeah. And again, I think it's really interesting. So Normally, I always have a stack of books next to the bed, you know, like maybe three or four that I'm reading at any given moment. I actually always have one of Marshall's books because, as you say, you can kind of dip in and out of it. Um, you don't necessarily need to read it front to back. And actually, it's a useful tool to have beside whilst you're kind of doing uh, other learning. So it'll, it'll actually trigger something to then pick it up or, or reframe how, how you're reading something. So I, I maybe somehow intuitively uh, 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 felt that, but but actually hadn't consciously um, uh, thought of it in that way. So I think it's, it's really interesting framing. And I think also hearing some of the things that you're saying, the idea that when we engage with a medium, that it's participatory, it's a, it's a feedback loop. And I think maybe social media is the first time in a digital context that's become painfully obvious to everybody. I think almost everybody, both at an individual level and then in a so at a social level, a macro level, feel there is a often unhealthy relationship with that medium and it is having negative impacts upon their well-being, their personhood, 
or you know society, society at large of course it also brings benefits like every technology it has its pros and its cons you know i i kind of came up in into the web really around web 2 is why when i saw some of the innovations around blockchain i felt intuitively that it was bigger than bitcoin that it could represent web 3 that that would have its pros and its cons but there was the opportunity to change the dynamic of relationship with with how we consume and engage with digital media or, or platforms. But of course, now we ha- we have innovations coming through in generative AI. And as you say, going beyond that, okay, it might not be as cool as it was a year ago, but it's definitely as inevitable around the metaverse and more immersive experiences through XR and everything else. So I would be interested to get your take on how you see McLuhanism's as relevant or maybe even not relevant, just being demonstrated through these kind of shifts of web two, web three, and then, you know, as we go into the metaverse and and a world in which content is being generated by artificial uh, intelligence. It's pretty wild for me because uh, as I, you know, suggested earlier, I wasn't much interested in the family business when I was a kid. And it wasn't until in my 30s that I started getting into it. So I've only been in it about a decade. That might sound like a long time, but there's so much work here. My grandfather did a lot in his lifetime. Um, I I think of him like an iceberg explorer. You know, they say that uh, when you see an iceberg, you're seeing about 10% of it. And most of it is underwater, right? He was like this guy that went around and said, oh, hey, look at that iceberg. And hey, look at that iceberg and just moved on, right? But... Uh, meanwhile, he left uh, these vast amounts of areas, rich, rich areas for us to to do the the rest of the work on. It's a blessing and a curse. You know, in understanding media, actually, Marshall brings up this saying of Bertrand Russell. And uh, Bertrand Russell said that if they only raise the temperature of the bathwater by half a degree every hour, we wouldn't know when to scream, right? And uh, speaking about immersive media, we're soaking in it. You know, the thing is, you can sit in a lukewarm bath and add a bit of hot water a bit at a time and build up that temperature to be like scalding, um, but you're quite comfortable. However, if you were to try and step into that scalding temperature from a from room temperature, you couldn't get your toe in, right? You'd burn yourself. The thing about our technologies today is that innovation happens so quickly that we don't have time to adjust. You know, we're dipping our toes in that scalding water. We don't realize it. We only feel it. And we're, we're not sure where to lay the blame. The thing about whether these technologies are good or bad things is it depends who you ask. Uh, and of course, we always develop technologies to help us with something, right? To make something faster or more efficient or easier or you know, whatever for more to entertainment. So, of course, there there are benefits for these things. There are also side effects. We usually find it about those a couple of years down the road when we see how much the world has changed and how we have changed, and think, oh, well, that was maybe a questionable <laughs> solution at the time. Social media, the iPhone, everything else. I often think about. You know, you see a, an ad on TV for a new drug, and uh, you've got a couple of people hand in hand frolicking through the surf, and it's a beautiful summer's day, and there's seagulls wheeling overhead, and 
the pants are rolled up to the knees and they're splashing through the waves and having the time of their lives. And in the background, you've got this guy narrating rapid fire about all the awful stuff that will happen to you if you take this pill, right? You're going to start bleeding out of places you shouldn't and your organs are going to fail and all this other stuff, right? And so in the end, the benefit is is questionable compared to what happens on the side. And it turns out the side effects end up being the main effects. You would think by now that we would take a bit more care and and try to mitigate those side effects. And the thing is, and um, the reason I care about McLuhan work so much is that we do have ways of, of anticipating a lot of these effects. Marshall McLuhan spent his career trying to help us understand that there were side effects and develop ways for anticipating and measuring and, and sensing them. And that's really what I do with my work is a lot of it can be very theoretical. I'm interested in what can help us today and tomorrow um, to help us make better, especially design choices. You know, innovation moves at the speed of light and regulation moves at the speed of paper. And it's obvious which one is always going to win. So it's kind of incumbent on founders and developers and engineers to kind of voluntarily do what they can because the government, you know, as soon as they get a law passed, we've moved on technologically. So how do you how do you do that? And one thing I've learned, you know, the first time I taught my understanding media class, it ended up I had somebody in there who was on the original team that developed the iPhone, the iPhone one, very small group of people at Apple. One thing I learned from him was he feels very responsible, the ways that our world and we have changed that aren't necessarily that great. And if he could do it over, he might do things differently. And I believe that people, founders out there, are so enthusiastic about creating their innovation, their technology. They really are, you know, most of them, trying to do good things in the world and help us as people not understanding that um, it's the side effects that get us and not really having very many tools to look at them, much less a comprehension that they're there, that the medium is the message, that the environment is a shaping force that changes us as individuals existentially and changes us as groups, societies, not understanding that one technology promotes a certain uh, suite of values and that another technology cuts the rug out from under that. That if we want any continuity in social continuity, that we need to pay attention to these things. It's a tall, it's a tall order, but this is what I try to do at the McLuhan Institute: is um, help people get gain an awareness that um, you know the medium is the message, and uh, to look a bit deeper and try to design accordingly. Yeah, and you know, very relevant topic for our audience, primarily founders. And over the years, we've been really lucky to have, you know, true OGs of innovation at an internet level, internet protocols, uh, all the way up to kind of web one. And what's really interesting is while some of them were working on, consciously working on big theoretical problems, others were kind of solving a problem late night um, over a weekend, didn't think too much about the solution, rolled it out. Often it was open source. And before you know, it became a standard. And as you, as you're kind of referencing with your, the Apple um, employee fundamentally changes how, how people interact with technology and, and potentially even, even beyond that. So definitely kind of re really feel that. I know 
you you kind of um, have a almost a, a card deck to teach McLuhanisms the the laws of media. Could you maybe just walk us through those, and then we can start to think about how we might apply them to things like generative AI or immersive media. Yeah, actually, I'm literally working on a card deck based on laws of media uh, to be a bit of a, a teaching tool and a, a helpful aid. You know, this is a project that grew out of Understanding Media, which was published in 1964. And uh, coming up on 10 years later, the publisher asked Marshall about doing a 10th anniversary edition. Uh, my father was working Marshall by that time in the early 70s. They decided to try and see, you know, we have laws of motion, laws of gravity, laws of thermodynamic dynamics, these things which are constant. He was intrigued by the question of why don't we have laws of media? Are there any things that all technologies do? Provision being that it has to apply to all technologies. If there's an exception, it's not a rule. You know, key key to this is what we talked about before that you have to broaden the category of what a medium is you know, what technology is. And that is, it, it has, so it has to apply equally to a piece of clothing as to, it does to um, a technological instrument like a smartphone or whatever else. And so he and my dad set out to, to do this. And long story short, they found four things that all technologies do. They were laid out in this book, uh, Laws of Media, The New Science, which um, it took my dad several years after Marshall died to publish that. It was published in 1988. It's interesting. There's been a lot of resistance to it, but I, it's starting to catch on uh, because it's hard to deny that, um, you know, that kind of thing might be helpful uh, today. Um, and it's not it's not theory, it's practice. Anyway, um, what they discovered that all technologies do these four things, which is, and it's not like one, then the other, then the other. It's like they all happen at the same time. It's simultaneous, not sequential. And that's kind of important. All technologies amplify or enhance some human faculty or ability, right? We always create a new technology in order to do something faster or easier or more effectively. At the same time, they make something else obsolete. We develop a new way of doing things and it takes over from the older way of doing things, right? And the interesting thing here and the important thing here is that Making something obsolete does not make it disappear. It's a change in role. I still have a landline. I don't use it as much. In fact, when it rings, it's either my mother or my mother-in-law. The old way of doing things becomes obsolete, which means that it's it's new. It has a new role, a new relationship. It's often reborn as an art form, like in records, for example, and DJ and turntablism. So something is amplified, something's made obsolete. Also, has a curious way of bringing back something from the past. Uh, a way we used to do things is brought back in a new form. It's retrieved. That gets that gets tricky because, of course, in order to understand or or guess what's been brought back from the past, you have to know what's in the past, uh, and that's a very deep and murky place. Oftentimes, considering recorded history is only so old, it, it has that characteristic. And uh, finally, when you take any technology and you push it very far, you go over a tipping point, and it tends to reverse its characteristics. I like to use, for example, uh, the highway, uh, because it's, it's pretty easy to see that it amplifies, it enhances, uh, you know, travel from A to B, right? Um, it makes it easier for us to, to get to work. It makes a suburb possible. We don't have to live walking distance to where we work anymore. 
we aren't beholden to the train or bus schedule. We can go when we want to. So it enhances the flow of traffic. It makes obsolete things like commuter trains and uh, carpooling and neighborhoods where you live and work. Um, those things aren't aren't necessary. They don't rule the day anymore. If you push it far enough, if you get too many people on the road trying to get to the same place at the same time, you get a traffic jam uh, or at least a slowdown. And that is quite obviously the reversal of the characteristics of the road, of the highway. And funnily enough, what it brings back from the past, uh, it took me a long time to figure this one out. And that's the thing about what it's called the Tetrad. It's a group of four things. The Tetrad, it sometimes takes a while to figure out all the pieces, and that's okay. And there's often more than one answer as well, and that's certainly fine. What it brings back from the past, I discovered, the highway. Um, when I was walking up the lane here uh, a while back with my dog, who happens to be a golden retriever, and I pass over this little stream, and I remembered that when North America uh, was new, before we had major roads, the main way of getting around was by canoe and boat. A lot of our major cities uh, in the UK as well, uh, London, for example, on the Thames there, this was why we founded cities and at safe harbors and ports and where rivers came together, because that was the main way of getting around quickly and easily transporting people and goods. The highway is kind of a cement river that brings back the river as a mode of transportation in a new form. So this is the thing about the laws of media and the Tetrad. They don't tell you everything about a technology. Every technology does more than these four things, but it gives you four good places to start. And, and from there, uh, you, can, you can go further. It's kind of the Swiss army knife of McLuhan or media studies, this kind of four-pronged tool for looking at the effects of technologies, not just the content, but how they actually reshape us um, personally and socially, because uh, they do so drastically, like like Zoom, for example, which is a new telecommuting, as they used to call it, right? Now, you don't even need the highway anymore because the, uh, you know, fiber optic cables are our new highways. The double-edged sword of that is when, you're, when your home is your office, um, it's hard to leave the office, or you never really do, do you? So... Uh, interesting it's it's a interesting way of looking at things i think yeah i mean and there's lots there i mean just on the zoom thing i know everything's projecting towards more and more people living in these kind of huge cities my experience um here in the uk is an increased focus on localness outside of the home people are actually spending more time locally in their local community on their local high street maybe that hasn't manifest in, in economically yet but it certainly feels like what I'm doing, and, and I, I can't be alone. Isn't that interesting that with the, the removal or the obsolescence of the highway, the neighborhood as a kind of solitary unit, and the small community has been reborn as something that's desirable. I find that very interesting. Yeah, and then when I think about you know applying those that tetrad, those four things to our world in Web3, well... You know, the whole point of Web3 is that it, it, it fixes what's broken with, with Web2, enables new things that are possible. But, you know, coming back to your um, analogy around records, LPs, you know, this idea that we talk about was things like NFTs, non-fungible tokens, allow for scarcity 
in a world that was previously of digital abundance to the point whereby anything that is digital was worthless other than the advertising that would go around it, you know, so people would expect music for free, the ability to consume unlimited libraries of music for the price of a espresso or, you know, foamed milk latte. Same being true for, for Netflix and Amazon Prime and, and all these things. And now... All of a sudden, it's allowing people to, uh, uh, younger generations, to experience digital scarcity, scarcity in the digital context. Um, but for people of my generation to re-experience the idea of ownership, provenance in a digital context. But then I think if we think of AI, for example, where we kind of started at the top, it's this cycle from literally a world of digits typing. You know, you kind of go into Google you, you start typing, you retrieve some information to conversation again. And even more so than asking a question on Twitter, which is what I used to do to circumnavigate, having to do the hard work myself, which was, of course, conversational, but still digital conversation. I can now literally ask a question in, in spoken English into uh, chat GPT and have a conversation with it. It'll produce, ask it a question, it'll produce an answer. I can say I'm not quite... I disagree or focus on this or can you refine it and and it will come back with further information and the way that I think of that now is I I literally have this near limitless council of experts that I can ask almost anything on to get an opinion now it won't be the perfect opinion um and there have been evidence that these things are stop learning. So rather than it being a feedback loop where based on the questions it's getting, it, it, it can give incremental, incrementally better answers. Apparently the answer is getting worse somehow um, by, by the conversation it's having. So, I mean, these things feel true and obvious, but it'd be great to get, you know, your take on AI, you know, how you're using it with this kind of tetrad in, in mind. I'm not really using it very much actually and it's not because i'm against it or afraid of it or anything uh, it's just of questionable utility for me i see it as a really souped up google search and that's of little use it's kind of like a librarian but without the experience or the personality <laughs> you know when you ask for a book recommendation or something they just give you the blandest answer possible possibly one advantage for me in this is uh, to do with McLuhan work. And people have been programming, you know, chat GPT to, you know, training it on McLuhan and stuff. And the difficulty is, is that a lot, most of the secondary McLuhan work out there is garbage. Sorry, I'm being kind of harsh. It's not great. And so it, you know, GPT is only as good as what you put into it. Um, so garbage in, garbage out, right? Interesting to me that um, I've seen in the last couple of years a swing back, and this should be unsurprising and actually very predictable, um, move from quantity to quality. People now are, it seems to me, more European in that um, they're happier to spend more for something of higher quality uh, and do it less often than to just buy cheap reproduced stuff. And that goes the same in the physical world as in the digital as well. You know, so what you were saying about scarcity and, and NFTs and non-fungible tokens, things like this. There's a swing back toward quality of experience 
over over quantity. And I think this translates also into uh, the physical world, as you suggested. You know, neighborhoods are becoming more vital concerns, and people, because you can work from home, um, where you live. Uh, becomes important again. I don't want to work from home in the suburb necessarily because when I go out, when I want to take a break and catch some air, I don't want to go outside and not be able to recognize which house is mine, you know? So um, the walkable city uh, is coming back in a, in a new form as something to be valued again. You know, I used to live in, in nearby Picton, which is a small town here. What I would say about it is Picton doesn't have everything, but what it has is within walking distance. And that's kind of an important thing. Um, it's nice to not have to drive everywhere. Um, it's nice to deal with real people and not just an interface. It's nice, it's good, it feels good to have relationships, um, not just friendships, but relationships with uh, the people who you transact with to buy a cup of coffee or an iPhone cord or whatever else. We've drifted so far away from personal interaction, uh, perhaps, that now we're drifting back towards it as we seek that quality of experience, that meaning in our lives. And I think these things are... Uh, directly relatable to our technological circumstance. It was only just underscored so much by what happened with COVID that just kind of slapped us in the face with the reality of, of these things that, that we value. And the thing to keep in mind when we're designing the next suite of, of consumer products or hardware or software, keeping these values in mind. And the thing that which I ask kind of provocatively to uh, founders and technology companies now is this thing that you're building, does it support the kind of values that you have personally as a company, as a community, or does it make them untenable? I think that answer should have very much to do with your direction in developing these things. Yeah. And I think it's, it's a great question because a product could be successful and subsequently you as a founder could be successful because a product is highly addictive for example um and everyone that uses it is miserable yet they're addicted to it just like you know any other thing in life that's addictive and so understanding what a successful product is what a successful founder is once you go beyond money and you're looking for kind of meaning uh and and, and a positive impact again coming back to your maybe your iphone um, uh, developer i think is important now in parallel to that i think if you look at there's this whole debate on twitter that kind of keeps coming back around the value of higher education and in particular certain courses and so anything that's kind of within the you know, humanistic framework is almost disregarded. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of money. You know, it's never going to lead to a real job. And you're better focusing on, I don't know, a job in finance or a job in technology. And, and so there is a real danger, actually, that we lose a class of people in society that are even asking these kind of questions, right? I think of it in terms of exercising, why do you go to the gym? You know, you go to the gym, you exercise to have greater positive benefit in your overall health, not necessarily because you're training to be a weightlifter or, you know, for some Olympic event or something. It's for the overall benefits. Studying is uh, the same sort of thing. And you don't have to go to, to university. Um, people have realized this now. 
um, necessarily for that, but train the brain that you want to have, you know, the benefits, like people are like, why, why would you study media? And it's like, well, I mean, do you want to understand the world that you live in? Because, um, <laughs> the two things are very related. A lot of people that take my course, some are students, some are ex-professors. Um, a lot of them are just people in technology fields in advertising and marketing who have a very intuitive understanding that this work is helpful to them. And by the end of the course, uh, they know it is because it's directly applicable um, to what they're doing day in, day out. And that uh, that gives me a, a great measure of hope. I think of the internet kind of as a, as a small town, more particularly like kind of like New York City or London. The magic, the magic thing about New York and London is that there are vast conglomerations of small business, of small towns, of communities, of neighborhoods. The great thing about living in New York is that you can connect with your, you can find your people. You know, you can open a business that uh, sells VHS horror movies from 1982 to 1987 and make a living because uh, people will find you and people can support you. It's like my course as well. If, if I wanted to have my course here in Prince Edward County, nobody would show up. Because I do it online, I'm able to connect with people in London, in France, in the US, in the UK, all over the world, and I, I can find my community. So it's it's very much, well, I don't know if somebody called it a global village, I think. And that was uh, very, very apt. This is the thing that I think we need to, to seize on to, discovering the utility and trying to do the best that we can to mitigate the, the negative kind of impacts. And there, there, are lots of, there are lots of ways to do that. I think people don't understand just how much agency we have. Of course, it's it's hard it's hard to know when a lot of these products are optimized for engagement and their addictive characteristics, um, and they don't have to be. This is the thing that blows my mind: is uh, people will will use what's useful to them, you know. And there's a lot of money to be made without necessarily making it uh, as addictive as possible. It's a uh, it's actually uh, very short-sighted, and I think people are starting to understand that. You know, I think it comes back to your point around you know quality over quantity, and that can easily be be demonstrated in the luxury category. You know, aside from the associated costs and how certain parts of society might be doing better than others right now, generally the luxury category is always growing versus other things, and increasingly it's moving into experiences over things. But I think maybe to kind of close off, one of the things that I found really interesting talking to you is, as I said, I have kind of got that book by my bed. I do use chat GPT to desk research stuff. I'm pretty sure the research assistant that I have to help me um, prepare for shows has has even leveraged it in, in some of that prep. But I know with this Tetrad, but beyond, you're enabling enabling people to take a McLuhan take. I think you refer to it as a McLuhan take. An assumption might be, well, you know what, like either chat GPT, if I ask it to reply as Marshall, or maybe there's a, a more specialist version that's been specifically trained on various data sets I could ask ChatGP to give me a McLuhan take and it, and it could do that competently. But I think, you know, having talked to you, the reality is that this has been a 
lifelong journey for you. I know you said you started relatively late, but it's you know, a couple of generations in. Your father obviously working directly with your your grandfather to pick up on. I, I think you reference, you know, he kind of talk about an iceberg and then move on to the next one. To, but to that depth of, well, wait a minute, actually, that's that's hugely insightful. Let's explore it. Let's go deeper. You know, that's been a multi generational dedication of a of a family really that obviously deeply cares about that legacy um, wants to make sure it's accessed and applied and that's just one subject matter that's one framework or one set of frameworks to help people understand the world i'm sure there are you know hundreds of thousands of others to what extent is a general purpose uh conversational AI tool going to ever be able to give you that depth? Um, and what is the danger in assuming it can? You know, as I mentioned at the very top end, I regularly hear people misquote, you know, McLuhan's work, Marshall's work. And given that the things that we're talking about are incredibly important, that that in and of itself becomes quite dangerous, right? If it's if it's actually misunderstood, misapplied. Things which Marshall didn't say get attributed to him, and things he did say get attributed to others. It can be it can be fun. I mean, really, um, at the end of the day, what matters is is how you're changed, how your view of the world has changed, and uh, is it art? Is it not art? Again, it's the same thing. At the end of the day, what matters is is the change in you and whether. This insight was generated by AI or by a human being. A lot of whether that's good or bad or useful or not depends on you, on the the output, right? I think it's not necessarily helpful to spend too much time thinking about that. It's interesting to consider whether GPT tools like this, how we're going to think about them even a year from now or two years from now or, or 10 years from now. Uh, one thing I collect here are, are reference works. I love reference works, like um, various different dictionaries and things. There's a there's a wonderful one called Dictionary of Phrase and Fable, uh, the Brewer's Dictionary. It is, and uh, if you're interested in in where any different phrase or or myth or something came from, you can look it up in there. One of the great things about it is uh, in any dictionary is um, is serendipity. You know, uh, this is one thing I love. I'm, I'm sitting in this library here of like 6,000 books. And one thing I love about libraries is I love going into a library without looking for a specific thing and just browsing and finding what I want. The digital doesn't optimize for much serendipity. Maybe it could. That's an interesting thing to think about. You know, I, I don't necessarily know that we've, we've reached... Um, the best use case for these tools yet. Uh, I think it's very early days for that. I'm not necessarily against them. Uh, I happen to, you know, I was born at a certain time and I'm familiar with certain ways of exploring knowledge. I understand that the effect of the printed word is very, very different than the effect of the word on the screen. It changes who you are as a person uh, for, for a quick example, we speak generally around 120 words a minute. Uh, some people much faster, some people slower, but in English, around 120. Uh, I can type around 80 words a minute, and I write by hand about 40. Uh, the conversation we have uh, by voice when we're each speaking at that rate, 
the conversation that we have uh, over email, the conversation that we have in written form uh, letters are very different. They make for different experiences, for different content, for different conversation, but they have very cognitive differences as well. One of the major effects of our digital technologies and you know, people spend between eight and 12 hours a day on screens of one kind or another, eight to 12 hours. It blows my mind, but it does, it does something to you cognitively. It does a lot to you. And one of the main things people complain about these days, uh, is anxiety, you know, overwhelming anxiety and uh, stress and things related to this. And a lot of it is just our, our racing minds. Um, well, there are ways you can change that. You know, one thing I, I suggest to people is, um, and what I do is I read as much on paper as I can, because not only um, can you type faster on a computer, you read faster on a computer. The printed page actually slows you down. Your eye on a screen tends to move faster and to skip and skim and look for pieces. Slow down your mind and, uh, you know, you slow down your mind quite beneficial effects at calming you down um, if you take 15 minutes a day and read from a book. It doesn't even matter what book it is, you know, beside the point, really, uh, because the content here is, is fairly irrelevant. What matters is the effect of the form on, on your cognitive processes. And same with, with handwriting. In order to uh, write, handwrite a page, and have it make any kind of sense, your mind has to slow down to match pace with your hand, or you just end up with a page of gibberish. And this can be, people don't do it because it's hard. It's actually difficult. We've, we're out of the habit. But if you do it, I, I would challenge anybody listening to write by hand a page a day. Do this for a month and and analyze the effect, and you'll find that it's made a big difference. Write a letter to your mom, write a list of groceries, write what you're seeing out the window, um, but write a page a day for an extended period of time, and you'll see the difference. And it's more than just um, an intellectual exercise. It actually will help you very much to form your thoughts in a more coherent way, you know, and the other effects ripple out from there. But um, I'm, I'm mentioning all this just to say that we have so much choice uh, and agency when it comes to our technological lives. Um, and it might, it might seem like we don't have a lot. To an extent, look, I have to have a smartphone in order to function, uh, to tweet, to do whatever else uh, for business. Um, but there are other ways to try and find some balance in there. Um, I attempt to read as much on page as I do on screen, and it's impossible, but <laughs> I still try because I know the brain that I want and I, I do what I can to get it so that I live the, the highest quality, as far as I judge it, uh, life that I can. Yeah, and I think, look, that really brings to life the whole medium is the message, right? Uh, people understanding that uh, feedback loop interaction with media fundamentally changes who they are. And it's interesting, to the great surprise of a lot of people, still read the, 
the paid newspaper in in print, Financial Times, delivered to my door every day. Um, I only read paper books. I, I don't read digital books. I don't listen to audio books because I spend so much of my life uh, working in, in in a digital context. I actively look for for ways to escape it. And uh, somebody once told me, if you're angry with somebody and you want to send them an email or a tweet or, or, or whatever else, write it down first by hand. Um, and it's and then if you got to send the email, you got to do the tweet or tweet thread, do it afterwards. And uh, it served me quite well. Normally, the email and the tweet never get sent. Um, Andrew, it's been brilliant having you on. It certainly for me unlocked the McLuhan legacy even more. I'm going to go and uh, go back and, and and read that book by the side of my bed tonight. I know that you're doing a number of different things. You mentioned some courses. I believe there's a synopsis that you're looking at holding at some point. How can people discover more about Marshall's work? How can they engage with you and, and the courses that you're doing? I do a, a substack called the McLuhan Newsletter. That's uh, usually a good place. You know, I'm constantly trying to bridge this time and space from Marshall's work and my father Eric's work yesterday to today. Um, the newsletter is one place I do it. Uh, the McLuhan Institute on Twitter is actually an amazing resource. I've spent years now putting the most interesting McLuhan quotes I find in my daily research on there. And if that search function, I discovered the search function on Twitter accounts is so helpful. I can go to the McLuhan Institute Twitter and search for you know, innovation or medium or any other keyword. And it brings up uh, a whole list of great quotes for me. So that's kind of a bonus. Yeah, my uh, I'm starting my next Understanding Media course uh, next month. Um, and that's, it's intense. It's called Understanding Media Intensive. And it's going through the book cover to cover, word by word. Wow. And it's 36 three-hour classes um, it's really a remarkable thing. Uh, it changes. It literally changed. People say it's life changing. It's a, uh, it's quite a thing. Um, the McLuhan Institute.com, although I'm, I'm not a web guy, so that doesn't get updated all the time. But, uh, if you, if you find the newsletter and you find me on social media, um, you'll keep up to date. Be in touch if you want. Andrew at the McLuhan Institute.com. Always happy to chat. Great. Thanks so much for coming on, Andrew. If you enjoyed today's podcast please make sure you subscribe rate and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of web3